Welcome to episode number one of the Family Ninjas podcast. As it is our first episode, let me tell you what we want to do here. We want to bring you real-life experiences from experts. These could be clinicians, educators, coaches, church leaders, and others who have stories to share about topics we think can help our audience strengthen their family. If you'd like to join us for a future episode, or if you know somebody who has a story that could help others, please reach out through FamilyNinjas.com. In this episode, we meet with Dr. Gregory Hudnall. You will hear more about his background when we start the episode, but today he's going to share real-life experiences and key things he's learned about the topic of suicide through his time as a public school administrator, professor, and leader of an organization that now serves over 300 schools around the world on this topic. Cue the intro. This is the Family Ninjas Podcast, bringing you experts that can share real-life experiences that help you strengthen your family. And today we have Dr. Gregory Hudnall. He's a former high school principal and associate superintendent with the Provo City School District in Utah. He's been involved with suicide prevention for the past 20 years. A little bit more about him. For over 15 years, Dr. Hudnall has been the team leader of a statewide suicide crisis team. He's the founder of Hope for Utah, a nonprofit grassroots organization dedicated to suicide prevention, intervention, and postvention in Utah. It's a school-based program, uh, or the school-based program Hope Squads, has been responsible for over 2,500 students uh, referred for help and is now in over 300 schools. His first book, titled Hope Squad, is coming out later in, in, in 2018. Thank you so much for meeting with us today, Dr. Hudnall. We're excited to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about yourselves? You know, I think the only thing that comes to the top is that you, when you're a dad, you love being a dad. So I have four children and eight grandchildren, and I've been an educator my entire life, and I just love being able to help families and to support the community. That's, that's great. We can surely tell where that passion comes through. Well, before we started recording, we were learning a lot about Hope Squads. Uh, Tanya actually was one of your students um, during your... Uh, I guess you're still at BYU, is that right? Yeah, I'm an adjunct professor. I've been teaching there about 15 years, so I love uh, the opportunity to interact with some of the best and the brightest young people coming up through the ranks. Wonderful. Well, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your book, Hope Squad. I think it really came from some of your experience at the Provo City School District, is that right? Yeah, it's actually our our journey. So, uh, interesting enough, uh, we were contacted by a publisher that... um, uh, called and uh, the young lady asked us if, if asked me if I'd be willing to share our story. And come to find out, she had been a reporter with one of the statewide newspapers. And uh, she said, "I've been following your journey for the last 15 years." And she said, "As we got together, we wondered if if maybe you'd be willing to share that story." So uh, I wanted to do something different than just sharing the story because it uh, it's a challenging read. I share a lot about. Um, Uh, the suicides that I've been involved with. I've been involved now with over 54 young people who have taken their life, including a a fourth grader. Mm. Um, And so I wanted it to be more than just telling the story. I wanted to add um, what we're calling lifesavers, action items that we as parents, that we as individuals and even even students can 
become aware of, of how to intervene, how to recognize signs, things that I can do as a parent when I'm worried about my child, resources that are available, and some of the tricks of the trade that I've learned over the past 30 years. Well, that's so valuable. I mean, knowing how much experience you've had in your own professional career, in your research, and the programs you've put together that are now being used uh, really around the world, uh, we hope to get a little bit from you today on how you know, maybe parents can mm-hmm. talk to their children. I know that the Hope Squad program has had a lot of success at bringing kids into the conversation, working with their, their peers and understanding uh, what some of these warning signs are. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more from the perspective of parents or family members. Uh, how do we recognize when someone is, is struggling with something like the idea of suicide? Yeah, and it's such a difficult topic, you know, across the country. Um, we've, we've raised a generation of older people who are afraid to talk about it. Mm-hmm. We think that if we talk about it, it's going to give someone the idea, when the reality is most young people don't want to die. They want the pain to go away, yeah. but they don't know how to make it go away, so they turn uh, to suicide to fill that void. What, what I try to do with parents is to help them, most important, when the children are young, um, to start building a relationship with them. Um, and it's that unconditional love that is so critical and so important um, so that when their child starts to struggle, they can identify it, but most important, they can have that conversation. If it's a teenager, I always start out by with the parents um, asking what kind of behaviors they're seeing it. Are they seeing it over a long period of time? The withdrawal, pulling away from family, mm-hmm. um, actually looking up information on suicide, looking up information how to kill myself. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more and more young people that are turning to cutting. Uh, years ago, cutting was not a direct link to suicide, but the CDC now has come out, the Center for Disease Control, and has labeled it as a direct link to suicide, so we're concerned about that. But one of the most important things I try to train parents is is in a private moment. When, when I see some behavior that I'm concerned about, whether it's this... Um, uh, anger over something that was shouldn't have been upset, my child is starting to change. Um, I train parents that between the husband and the wife, at that moment, who's the closest to the child? Mm, okay. Because sometimes when we do it as pairs, young people feel that they're being ganged up on. Yeah. And so I encourage parents to find time um, to do it privately, maybe go out for an ice cream, maybe go for a walk, do something one-on-one that's non-threatening, do it when they're not angry, when they're not emotionally exposed as a youth or as the adult. And then I train the parents to use the iMessage. And we really practice it. And part of that practice is starting out by saying, hey, honey, tonight at the dinner table, I noticed that when you, your brother asked for the salt, you just blew up at him. Yeah. Or, so you want to give the detail. You want to mm-hmm. give as much information of the experience of what you're referencing to. And then ask that question specifically, I'm worried about you. And to be upfront and honest and lay it out, I've noticed some changes in your behavior. I've noticed some things that are different than what have been in the past. Are you okay? So starting out that way so that the child can see they're not in trouble, the child can see that the parent really is genuine, interested in them, and that they care about them. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You know, our... Our first thought, maybe as parents um, or, or church leaders or teachers who are working uh, with their students, uh, might be to frame the question in, 
I don't want to call it an accusatory or confrontational way, but likely in a way that uh, would maybe put the kid on guard. It's like, wh- why are you doing this kind of a question? But you're, you're suggesting something very different. Yeah, and in fact, I see the parents that struggle. It's usually you did this or you did that to your sibling um, instead of um, being more less accusatory and more supportive mm-hmm. and more seeking to understand yeah. what happened or what's going on in their life. I like that, that seeking to understand. You mentioned how important it is to have that relationship as you talk to them. Is it ever too late to build that relationship? You know, sometimes parents and teenagers, they can just clash, and it's difficult. Yeah, and and having been one of those parents, you know, I can remember my wife is a therapist. We raised our children on a farm in Provo, and um, there were times when, you know, struggling with a 15- or a 16-year-old, uh, my wife and I would look at each other and say, y- you go talk to him, he's your kid. Um, because <laughs> you, sometimes you do battle and sometimes you pit heads against each other. When I see those types of situations, I then encourage the parent to seek outside help. Maybe there's an opportunity for a uh, non-threatening individual like a therapist, um, an individual that can come in, meet with you know the in, their child individually. Um, it's amazing how many times kids have opened up to me and will say, well, let's meet with your mom and dad. And they will say, no, I don't want to talk to them. Yeah. So you do have those challenges. And, and it's one of the reasons that I try to help parents realize it and engage it early on so that when the children are young, we're talking three years old, four years old, five years old, so that it's less threatening mm-hmm. and it's more an accepted way of behavior within my home. Um, so teenagers, it's tough. Junior high, I see a lot of kids that struggle in junior high and, and in high school. And when I work with their school counselors and teachers and others, um, they feel like they're always being attacked by their parents. They feel like they're always in trouble. And so that's why we want to break that barrier down so it's less threatening and it's more of, I'm concerned about you. Can you help me understand? One, one father um, actually did this. Uh, it was on our, our statewide radio station um, or television station. And at the very end, Dave McCann, the reporter for KSL, said, Dr. Hudnall, if there was one thing, what would you like? And I said, I would hope that parents would have the courage to talk to their child. If they see things that that are concerning them, they have the discussion. And the very next day, I got this phone call from a gentleman who wanted to come and meet with me. And when he did, he was this huge Hawaiian. And he said, I just have to tell, share my story. He said, my wife and I were watching it on news last night. Our son is a football player, broke his ankle in the state playoffs. Very worried about him. This was his this was his ticket to college. And um, so we could he just went downhill immediately. So we watched it. It was late at night, about 1030 when the news went off. And my wife turned to me and said, okay, you got to go do this. And he said, I don't want to, but you got to go do it. So he said, I walked upstairs, tapped on my uh, son's bedroom door. And he said, Came in, come in. And I walked in and sat down on the bed. And my son looked at me and said, Dad, what do you want? And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, you usually don't come in here unless you want something. Yeah. And he said, well, your mom and I were watching this on television. And the gentleman encouraged us to talk to our children. And here I am. And he said, I did everything that you asked me to do. And he said it was one of the most amazing 30-minute discussions. And at the very end, he said, "Um, son, are you okay? And he said, my son teared up and he said, dad, I'm struggling. But I'm not suicidal. 
but I have two friends I'm worried about. Wow. And he said, I was able to reach out to my son's friend's parents. So he said, I just want to say thank you. Wow. That that's, is such a great story. And that's really interesting to me. Of course, you know, some of the first suggestions you gave there were, were building relationships with your kids early by practicing those I questions and creating a, a sense of family where you're waiting for them to respond. You're giving them the opportunity to express themselves, their feelings, their thoughts. And that, of course, is really important. But the story you just shared is more likely where a lot of parents are with kids who are in junior high and high school, um, or even kids who are in college, uh, uh, young, young adults. And you know, maybe in those circumstances where that relationship, for one reason or another, isn't as strong, the first time you actually do it might be a, a, a more powerful experience for the kid. It's like, you said, Dad, you never do this. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I guess the point I want to make there uh, is not only how interesting it'll be for the kid to have the opportunity the first time and how he might make fun of the opportunity, but how that particular father approached it. He didn't try to make up an excuse to talk to his kid. And I, I listened to a lot of parents who uh, maybe uh, try to make up an excuse to have the conversation. But this father didn't do that, did he? Yeah, and, and I think that's the, the point. And the other thing that I really encourage parents to think about is, is be honest and upfront. When you struggle, your children can read through that. And I would rather have a parent be honest with their child who is saying, I don't know how to have this discussion, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm very worried about you. I'm concerned about the behaviors I'm seeing. It's amazing what that does to drop the guard down. Mm. Because the child can, they feel that emotion and they see it. They, they live with you. They know when you're being sincere or whether you're doing it just because you have to do it right. or you're doing it for other people. And, and so that's why I always tell parents, speak from the heart and be very serious and be very sincere. You know, that, that's so helpful. There's not some script that you have to read. You just be yourself and you show that sincerity and that love to your children. Yeah. So after you have these discussions with your children, what's next? How do you build these lifesavers that you're talking about? So, so depending on the situation, the lifesavers, one of the things that we talk about in the book is protective factors. So some of the protective factors, I've trained over 45,000 people and invariably I'll have 10 or 12 people after every um, training or presentation uh, asking me, well, tell me what to do. What's the magical answer? And so now we do more and more training on protective factors early on. The number one thing, research-driven, that families can do with their children once a day is to have a meal together. Oh, wow. Put the phones away, turn the television off, and it's one of the most important protective factors because what it does is it builds connectedness and it builds support in a non-threatening environment for that child. Schools can be hard, life can be hard, um, you know, you have these experiences outside of the home. And when you think about Maslow's hierarchy, Maslow says families provide food, shelter, safety, you know, those they basic, yeah, the basic necessities. And if you're not taking the time to prove that you're willing to do it, then kids get then kids get lost in the shuffle. We've been working with a school that unfortunately had seven suicides. It's a high school, 9th through 12th grade. And we've been doing randomly focus groups, um, 9th through 12th young people, randomly selected, 12 of them we bring together, and we start to ask the questions. 
Why is it so difficult? What are your biggest challenges? What do you see happening in your home, in your school, in your community? And one of the things that they talk about that rises to the top, unrealistic expectations. Mm -hmm. My family is doing way too many things. You know, I'm involved in tennis, I'm involved in track, I'm involved, you know, junior high kids talking about seven different things they're involved in. And we're, we're literally running from sun up to sundown. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we've taken away, we as parents want to fill those voids, and we're taking away the opportunity for young people to investigate, to explore. And so I tell parents, with that protective factor, have that one meal a day, Focus on that child or the children. Ask those questions. How was your day at school? Who was your, what was the most interesting thing happened today? What did you learn in science? You know, find out their children's schedules. Ask those questions. Talk about politics. You know, talk about things that you can engage them in and so that they know you're interested in them. They know that, that you value them. Tanya will remember this, but in every one of my classes as a professor and as a former teacher, I call on every student at least once. And it's one of the things that we're training teachers across the country now. I worked with a young lady, 15 years old, who tried to kill herself. And when I was in the hospital working with her, I said, tell me what happened. And she said, Dr. Hudnam, do you know what it's like to go through life, including my own home, and a school of 1,500 students, and not one person used my name. Not one person. Oh, I went sad. for three weeks. She said, I felt invisible. My parents were too busy. We never had meals together. We never even interacted. It was rushing to the car, rushing to an event, rushing to church, rushing to whatever. But she said, I felt like a nobody. I felt invisible. And so the more we can do that with our family so that they know that we care about them. And we can have disagreements. We can have, you know, even arguments as long as we're not rude. We can agree to disagree. But they know that we know them and we care about them. Wow, such a powerful, yet so simple. If we try to carve that out of our schedule, such a simple thing to protect our children. Yeah, it, it really and is. And unfortunately, it takes practice it in does. today's society. Yeah. So that might be one way we can you know, boost these lifesavers, either as family members or friends, teachers, church leaders, just use their name. Well, I'll tell you a fun thing we did in our church, and um, I was criticized for it at first, and now everyone's coming to find out about it. So we took our church, and you can do this in any faith base. I was uh, just in California last week. Uh, I was in, uh, invited by SAMHSA, which is the National Substance Abuse Mental Health Agency. They invited two representatives from every religion in the United States to come to California and talk about what we can do to help families. The other protective factor is religion. Hmm. Religion, it doesn't matter what church you belong to. Religion is a, a very high up there right after having a meal with your family every day because of the connectedness. And because of the, the beliefs and the values we have within that religion to support one another. So you feel that you're needed, you feel that you're connected. But one of the things that we did in my church is we went and collected all of the names of the young people. Then we met with the youth leaders and we asked them to get a picture and a paragraph about that individual. So Sally plays volleyball on our high school team and, you know, Sally wants to be a teacher or whatever. So then, unbeknownst to the, to the youth in, in the church, we created this little um, pamphlet, this little booklet. And, and, and at that time in, in my church, we had about 45 youth. So we did all the, all the young men, all the young women. 
So we created this manual, and then we, we did a, a special Sunday uh, meeting where we brought all of the adults together. And then we passed out those booklets to every adult. Hmm. And we asked them to go home, study them, memorize them, and get to know the kids in our church. Because kids feel disconnected. They feel disconnected from adults. They feel disconnected from others. Loneliness is one of the top things that I find. About 22% of youth leave notes. And um, unfortunately, of the 54 I've been involved in, I've read too many notes. Mm. And one of the top things in the notes is, Mom, Dad, don't blame yourself. This is not your fault. The second thing is, I feel all alone. Mm. And then the third thing is, off and on, I feel like I'm a burden. I feel like no one understands me. But it was amazing what happened in that church. The first week, you know, little Donnie's walking down the hallway and this 87-year-old gentleman walks by and he goes, hey, Donnie, how are you? And Donnie goes, you know, it looked up with surprise, like this guy even knows my name. Yeah. And then he said, hey, you're playing on the football team. How's your team doing this year? Or you want to be this or whatever. It was amazing how it changed the momentum of every adult in that church recognizing the youth in, in our church. Wow. It, was, it was so successful. That is such a cool story. That actually makes me think of something a little more trivial. Um, some of the best teachers I've had would start the year with some kind of getting to know you exercise. And uh, even in elementary school, I remember, they'd ask what my favorite candy bar was. They'd ask every kid right. in the class that right. question. And then when your birthday came around or some other event, they would give you that candy bar. Well, that just shows that they're paying attention to right. you. That's the key. You, you, go, you go on uh, Rate a Professor, and my name's up there, and, and you know they, they give me pretty good marks, but at the very bottom, almost every one of them say, I love his class, but he drives me crazy because he calls on me every <laughs> class period. And, and I see it over a period of time. The, the laptops, laptops start coming down, hmm. and they start becoming engaged. And right. can I tell you, parents, that's what we need. We need more of that. And our mantra with, with our, our Hope Squad program is that while it takes an entire village to raise a child, we believe it takes an entire community to save one. So we don't care if you're a neighbor, a coach, a teacher, whether you're a relative, a faith-based leader. We don't care if you're the mailman or the truck driver. We want you to be involved in helping save lives. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So I want to use that to segue into another question. As a youth myself and with working um, with many teenagers, a lot of people have friends who will talk to them about being depressed and have suicidal thoughts and they don't know what to do. It feels like this tremendous burden to have a best friend talking to you about it but not opening up to other people. So what do teenagers do? What can they do to reach out for help and, and for their friend and for themselves with this heavy burden? So the first thing is read our book because we go through it step by step. But it's, it's the model that we've created with our Hope Squads. Because Hope Squads are nominated by their peers as someone that they trust, someone that is easy to talk to. And so we've created curriculum helping young people be able to have that, those discussions. We're, we're afraid to talk about suicide. We're Certainly. afraid to talk about mm -hmm. mental health issues. We've had Hope Squads in elementary schools for 14 years. Wow. Research that has just come out over the last year, some of the age groups that have increased the most, 11-year-old girls. Now, while it's still rare for suicide, it's still an age group that has increased. And we're seeing 
much younger kids struggling. I've dealt with a fourth grade suicide, two fifth grade suicides, all the way up. Mm. Um, the youngest individual that we know who's attempted is kindergarten. Kindergarten, that attempted suicide. Put a plan together and attempt it. One of the best things that, that uh, young people can do, and um, we do this a lot, is training them to listen. That's the most important thing. So we train them with listening skills. Uh, one of the first things I'll do, and in fact I just did a church group uh, across the lake in Saratoga Spring, 350 youth. So I make everybody stand up and go introduce themselves to someone they don't know. And then they decide who, who's person A and who's person B. Person A, when I say go, they get 60 seconds to tell their life story. Hmm. Person B cannot ask questions, cannot interrupt, can do nothing but focus on what person A is saying. So then we'll do 60 seconds with that, and then we switch. And when we get done, I'll ask the students, I'll ask the young people, and I do this with adults, but I'll ask the young people, how did that make you feel? Hmm. And about 50 hands always shoot up, and they go, oh, it was so difficult because I wanted to ask questions, and I wanted... And I said, how many of you, when you start to listen, you start formulating questions and comments already in your mind? 80% of the hands go. Mm -hmm. And then I say, how many of you interrupt? And about 90% of the hands. Oh, yeah. Because what happens is we've lost this ability to focus on what the person is saying. And what we like to train them and teach them is for 60 seconds, you have the ability to change a life. So then I ask the young people, how does it make you feel when someone is totally focused on you? And the kids go, it feels like they care about me. They want to get to know me. This is amazing. And it's just talking. I mean, this is not <laughs> yeah. rocket science, right? <laughs> this is just taking the time, put the phones away, the distractions, and becoming engaged. So we train young people to listen to what the person is saying. We train them on the iMessages. We train them on how to interact and provide support. And then we also train them on when to go to the adults so that when it becomes serious, it's QPR, question, persuade, refer. Mm -hmm. We question, we persuade that person to get help, and then we refer them for help. So who is an adult that they might go to? Would it be their parents? Would it be their friends' well, parents? We always start, in the school system, we'll ask. We train the young people to ask the, the friend that they're talking to, would you be willing to go to Mrs. Johnson, the school counselor? No, I, I don't know Mrs. Johnson. Mm -hmm. Is there someone else that you trust? Is there a... And, and we train, you know, is it the coach or on the baseball team? You know, who, and invariably, and, and I've done this in front of hundreds and hundreds of people, I will bring up someone and I'll tell them, now, you're not interested in getting help to role play. So they fold their arms and they'll say, no, I don't want to talk about it. So when I ask, you know, can we talk to Mrs. Johnson? Nope, not interested. Then I'll ask, is there someone else you're interested in talking to? I don't think so. And then I'll say, you know, talking about it can be very helpful. Who do you trust on campus? And then they'll give me a name and I say, why don't we go visit with them? And invariably they go, okay. And then they go, no, I'm supposed to not do that. But once you start helping them understand that you care about them and that it is helpful to talk, it's amazing how those barriers come down. The key is listening. We train them to listen and to not judge and to be that caring, kind support system. That makes a lot of sense. We look forward to reading more about it and how to listen even better, but that makes a lot of sense and how that helps people open up, feel not as lonely, feel understood, and find help with somebody that they trust and, and feel like they're connected to. 
Well, there are a lot of other questions we can ask, and I'm sure there are a lot of questions our listeners have. Uh, what are some good resources that we can point people who are listening towards if they're parents of children who are struggling with this, or even educators or church leaders? Yeah, it, so I would suggest there's a couple of things. Um, there's a national websites that have a lot of great information that you can go to. You have SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Agency. Mm -hmm. There's even great uh, websites like uh, uh, bullying.org mm -hmm. um, that is set up by the government, bullying.gov. Um, they can go to our website, hopesquad.com, um, and get more information. Um, I would look at what, what, what resources are available in my community. Do I have a local mental health agency? Do I have a local health department? Right. I would look and, and find out what you know, health fairs, activities, different things that are available locally for me. Is there a crisis line? We train young people to always have the crisis line when that friend is struggling. They have their friend whip out the phone. They have them put that crisis line in their phone so they have that available. So I would really look to see what's available in my community. And then national resources, go online, type in how to talk to my child. Go and talk, you know, type in, you know, specific areas that you're worried about. And there's, there's amazing resources. Great. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, we'll put information about the book in the show notes for this episode. And if you have any other questions about Dr. Hudnall and his work, you can, of course, go to their website at hopesquad.com. But Dr. Hudnall, thanks again. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you.